Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and every week we discuss articles and topics that we have found about the world of wine and bring that information to you. Hi there, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine, researching wine topics of current interest and events. And every week we like to talk about all the extra research that we did about wine. So Mark, what did you Google about wine this week? This week, Kim, I had a person ask me for a Meritage wine. Okay. And very rare to hear someone say, usually it's just give me a red blend, right? Years ago, remember, there were a lot of producers were putting that yeah. on the label. Mondavi would say Meritage. So I wanted to double check to just make sure for myself. So people still... haven't been asking you about Not Meritage, Meritage blends in a while? No, just, oh. just they'll say red blends. They won't okay. say Meritage. Like, do you have any Meritage and red they, blends? Do they, do they ask for Claret? They, they do not. They do not. But I wanted to find out if there has been any real definition in the United States of what a meritage is. Okay. There's no real technical description of a meritage other than it's a use of the five Bordeaux blended grapes in any way you want to use them. See, that's funny because I thought that it actually was restricted and that if you wanted to use that word that you had to follow certain rules and you almost had to get like a certification to be able to use the word meritage on your on your wine. There so is, that's not the case anymore? No, well, there is a group that was started in the 80s, a Meritage group that was saying you can use this Meritage Alliance on the label oh, to say you're part of it, it to okay. help people. But And there was still, I so I wanted to see what products were also out there. So I just, what available for Merit, that a labeled Meritage and still comes up Mondavi, Sterling, Harlan, Estancia, Clolichance. So there are still producers that put it physically on the label. Okay. So but a, but a name I, that's not quite as popular as it was, say, a couple of decades ago. Yeah. And when a customer asks you, you're like, wow, what, what, like blast Your from ears the past, perk up. right? Yeah. And they do make white <laughs> Meritage, but True. that's what I Googled this yep. week. What about you, Kim? So we had talked in last week's show about monks and wine production and how religious communities used to be very highly involved in winemaking and grape growing and preserving the traditions of making wine. So I wanted to Google if there were any books or what other resources we could look into on that topic. And there are a lot of articles and a lot of passages in books that do talk about the contributions of the Catholic Church and a lot of religious communities in preserving the traditions of winemaking. But I have yet to find a specific book, but I'm going to keep on looking because because this obviously ties into my love of wine history and all of that stuff that I like to read about. So I'm going to keep up my search for books about monks and wine. Did you find Italian monks? Italian monks, yes. Oh. Italian monks, Spanish monks, of course, French monks, and then American as the missions from Mexico moved up into California, which was still Mexico at this point, but uh, responsible for introducing grapes to California. So we're going to talk about a style of wine that everyone has heard of, but that most people don't have very much experience with. And that is 
Sherry. So Sherry from the south of Spain, from a region that has been making wine for a very long time and makes very particular styles of wine. And there are producers in California and in other places that might put the word Sherry on their label. But we are talking about the real deal from from Jerez, which is in the very south of Spain, where it's really hot and it's right there on the ocean. And they make some of the most unique styles of wine in the world. I like your pronunciation on that. Thank you. So I think this is one of those wines that has a real PR problem. Yeah, it's got a bad reputation. Bad rep. And mostly people, for me, I see, they come in, they're looking for a sherry. It's cooking only. Give me a sherry. Then I'll just ask, dry or sweet? What are you doing with it? Cooking. They go to the the pastine, the $6 bottle. And I always tell them the same thing. Don't worry. Once you open it, it's going to last a while for cooking, right? Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners, Kim, you had mentioned the region in Spain. It is also one of the driest wines in the world. Right. I think going back to what you just said about Sherry has a bit of a PR problem. I think one of the reasons why it has a PR problem is because you use the same term Sherry to describe crazy differences in style because the name Sherry can be associated with a wine that is very light and is is some of the bone driest white wine in the entire world. Like think about Sauvignon Blanc that's really dry or Pinot Grigio that's really dry. And then take that dryness another notch where not only is there no sugar that you can physically taste, but it literally has no sugar left in there. So it is like crazy different from anything else that you've ever had. So those styles, Fino is a term that is associated with those. Manzanilla is another type of sherry that is that really, really dry style. And then you can also use the word sherry to describe a super sweet dessert wine. So I think it's hard because because you have the same words that are describing wines that are very, very different. It's like if you had champagne that was sparkling, but then you also had champagne that was a big, heavy red wine. It's like, hmm, why are we using the same word to describe these two massively different styles of wine? So that, I think, is not exactly working in Sherry's favor. So, Kim, let's start, uh, listeners, you were you're talking about styles. Let's go through the styles. But first, let's tell the listeners what the actual Spanish grape is that is the main grape in Sherry. So the main grape in Sherry is a grape variety called Palomino, and it is a white grape, and that is the main grape that is used to make all of these sherries. There's also another grape variety called Pedro Jimenez that makes the sweeter styles of sherry. Sometimes you'll see that there are dessert wines that are only that grape, um, and you'll, sometimes they shorten it to PX, the letters PX, because Pedro Jimenez can be a little bit of a mouthful sometimes. And those are, oh my gosh, they're delicious, but they do tend to make those sweeter styles of wine. So Palomino, uh, you won't see the grape variety generally on the label, uh, but it's it's mostly this grape that is used for making sherry. And in, in previous times, this was grown in other parts of Spain as well, but pretty much now it's only restricted to the sherry region. And one of the things in, in wine education is you always have to come up with these things, Kim, to remember the grapes. Remember, so do you remember how you learned Palomino and sherry? Um, something about the, the soils in the area are very white in color and that's what palomino means as well so you learned it different than me oh I, what did you learn I, I learned sherry came in riding her palomino oh. horse <laughs> so See, i wanted to associate it with the soil type because i had to remember this particular grape variety soils. it grows on you know well, it's grows good how we both like learned it. So different ways so that's it then. See, now i'm going to remember sherry and her palomino her horse, horse. <laughs> all right so now let's talk about the three categories of 
sherry. How it's aged is basically the category styles, right? Mm-hmm. So first one is how it's aged biologically. And what do we mean, Kim? I, you are talking in the past how acid scares people. I mean, you're hearing <laughs> something's aged biologically. Bio- biological people are probably aging. saying, yeah, what's going yes. on here? Right? So what makes sherry unique and different from other styles of white wine is this very particular type of yeast that ferments the wine. So when sherry is made, there's this type of yeast that grows on the top of the wine and it creates a barrier between the wine and oxygen. And it is this yeast that eats not only the sugar, but it really changes the texture and the flavor of the wine as well. So it's creating this barrier. So there's no oxygen getting in there. It's keeping the wine very young tasting and fresh, but then it also transforms the sugars and transforms the acid into this very unique, super duper dry style. Um, And because a lot of this aging and production goes on very close to the sea, a lot of people say that they can taste sort of a brininess or a saltiness in these sherries. So these are called biological because they require the presence of this yeast called floor yeast. And it's the these two styles that I had mentioned before, Fino Sherry and Manzanilla Sherry. So these are the driest, lightest, they're very pale in color. And they are, this is not dessert sherry. This is like appetizer kind of sherry. And the things that people always talk about as food pairings are things that are salty, olives and nuts. They go great with all sorts of different tapas sorts of things, seafood, but more like munchies to go with, with this style of light wine. So that layer of yeast, protects the wine from oxygen. Mm -hmm. So that's the first style uh, method of sherry making. The second is oxidative wines, which allows the oxygen to eat away at the wine to change the profile of the wine. Right. So it ends up being a browner in color and also these nutty flavors that are associated with that that oxidative effect. Because when air gets into wine, it changes just the aromas, it changes the flavors. Sometimes it makes the wine go bad and then other times for these styles like Oloroso Sherry, it just creates this big, nutty, powerful, uh, also still dry wine. So the Olorosos never see the floor of the right. yeast. No floor yeast in Oloroso Sherry. It's, it's So it's not protected at all. Right, but still dry. So we're still talking dry wines here. We're not talking sweet wines yet. So you could pair those with heavier, richer foods, right? Mm-hmm. In this aisle, I think they mentioned ribs. Yeah, meat dishes, ribs. something something bigger because the wine itself is more powerful. So you want to balance the the weight of the food and the weight of the wine. And then they talk about the third categories where they would do both methods. Right. So this this is the kind of in the middle. So there's just the biological, there's just the oxidative, and then you have the style in the middle, which has a little bit of both. There's the style called Amontillado. So for those of you who have read some Edgar Allan Poe, and there's a story called The Cask of Amontillado. They're literally talking about a, a wine cask. And this style is like a Fino, but like an old Fino. So it kind of started its life as a Fino Sherry and then got a little bit of that oxygen in there after the floor died away. So it's like a, a heavier 
an older style of Fino Sherry. You can really see why it has a P opera. Isn't this confusing? It's so, it's I so know. confusing. You lost me, Kim. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I'm just, so it, are you an explorer of Sherry? I, I do kind of like Sherry. Yeah. Um, I tend to keep a couple bottles at home for different reasons. Some of it to cook with, honestly. I don't drink a whole lot of it on its own, but you know, every once in a while, a nice dry one. But honestly, I do keep a couple of different styles around for cooking because I have some recipes that call for the dry stuff, some that call for the sweet stuff. So they do keep really well. So it's it's a nice um, handy thing to have in the liquor cabinet. Yeah, I think not only do they keep after they're open, but you don't have to worry about going into a retail and seeing sherry on the, the shelf and worrying really that it's going to be bad. Do mm-hmm. you think, Kim? Because it's it's one of those things that lasts. It's, right, it it's last. higher in alcohol. You don't have to worry about it. So and, and the price differences between the cooking level and the quote drinking level, it's you're talking much. 10 bucks. Yeah, right? if that. If that. The, one of the ones that I would routinely keep in my house was and it was a smaller bottle i think it was like a 500 milliliter but even that was like 12 or 15 dollars a bottle like it wasn't crazy expensive um so when you open one kim are you also keeping these in your fridge i'm keeping the finos in my fridge yeah i want to see this fridge you have any food in there or is it just all wine? i have a designated <laughs> beverage refrigerator for say, for beer and wine yeah there's always stuff in my refrigerator. yeah every time you say i open a bottle <laughs> i put it in the fridge, fridge. i put it in the fridge, fridge. <laughs> kids ain't getting to the milk too easy in that house milk orange juice and wine and then the other style which most people are familiar with, especially when they start thinking about the sort of the connotation of sweet sherry uh, is cream sherry, which if people think about, (laughs) there seems to be this like idea of like older ladies sipping on little glasses of sweet sherry. This is kind of the style that they're talking about. So cream sherry is a, it's kind of starts its life as a dry sherry and then they add sweet wine to it. So bump up that sugar level. Um, Don't make it too boozy. Uh, You still really only want to drink it in small quantities but i think that that is more has to do with it being a a sweet or a semi-sweet kind of wine um but pretty easy to drink fruity pretty delicious honestly this is that harvey's flashback like, right? yeah harvey's like harvey's brand. bristol cream is one of them um most of the producers do make a cream sherry and i they're not bad they, they just were very have popular a bad before people even thought about the cooking the cream sherries were the go-to yeah. exploring dessert wines and this is the the wine that has the grape you mentioned earlier the px the pedro jimenez is there that how you go. say it? jimenez good. my spanish is better than my italian <laughs> You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to send us a question, just follow us on Facebook, The Wonderful World of Wine. The next article we'd like to talk to you about was in winespeed.com, and it's about a German sweet wine called Ice Wine that they believe could be coming to an end because of our old friend Kim global warming which we talked about in a past show but this is how it affects this style of wine in Germany so first let's tell our listeners what is a German ice vine ice wine's cool stuff Um, it's expensive it's delicious and it is only made in certain years because the conditions in the vineyard in the wintertime have to be just perfect in order for ice wine to be produced so what happens is so grapes do their normal ripening 
and growing through the spring and the summer and the fall season. And instead of picking those grapes, if they have perfectly beautifully ripe grapes that don't have any mold, that don't have any problems with them, they will leave the grapes on the vine and then let them freeze there. And what this article was specifying was that there has to be a certain number of days and nights that are below a specific temperature in order for the grapes not only just to sort of freeze into mushy juice, but to really freeze solid. And only in those cases can they then pick the grapes and then press them and make the juice into wine. So when you freeze the grape, you freeze the the water in the grape. And then when you press it, you leave the water behind and you end up with just really concentrated juice. So it's all the good stuff that is in the grape juice and that would be turned into wine except for the water. So you're still retaining the sugars and you're still retaining the flavors and the acids and all of those wonderful things that make certain wines unique. And you're concentrating it because you just not you just don't have the water there. But they're saying that now with warmer winters and even just by a few degrees, we're not seeing the conditions where ice wine can be properly made anymore. And that is a real shame because it is quite a unique, fascinating and absolutely delicious style of wine. So you have to think, Kim, a natural freeze and they they have an actual temperature. It's like minus seven degrees Mm -hmm. Celsius. They can't pick it until it reaches this temperature. So and it has to stay that that temperature for for days. Yeah. And you look at the pictures of of these grapes. There's snow. I mean, they just there's nothing really you gotta think about what they're picking. They're harvesting if you consider it, they're harvesting a lot to get very, very little juice out of it. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, these wines come in uh, 375 milliliters, half-size bottles, and they're not making a lot, but it's a tradition. Right. So they're saying, all right, what are we going to do? We're noticing we're not getting these freezing days. We're noticing we cannot get the harvest. What are we going to do? And they're not going to, they're not going to change the rules, apparently, because in the rules, in order to be able to make an ice wine and call it such, it has to be a completely natural natural process. You can't pick the grapes and throw them in a freezer for two days and then press them. There are producers in Canada, in the U.S. that make ice wine that way and call it ice just call it ice wine. Uh, it's not German ice wine, but there are fewer regulations and restrictions over here to make a an ice wine style wine. But if you're making them in Germany, you have to follow all of these rules and it has to be that they have to freeze outside naturally and you can't just pick them and, pick them and process them in a, a, a less natural way. So maybe those restrictions will change and maybe there they might make room for artificially freezing if you're going to end up losing this whole style of wine. But the flip side of this article was that the ice wine style may be going away, but changes in climate are making more likely that we see other styles of dessert wines being made in Germany. Uh, And these other styles rely on a fungus that attacks the grapes and shrivels them that way. So the fungus actually removes all of the water and dries up the grapes and almost kind of turns them into raisins. Um, and, And we're starting to see a little bit more of that, which some producers think is a good thing because they like those styles of dessert wine more than they like ice wine. So I thought that was an interesting silver lining <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, The listeners are probably saying, can you imagine, first we're talking about you f- you're letting these grapes freeze and shrivel on now the vine. Now we're talking about now fungus. Now you're talking about <laughs> fungus is good for the wine. Sounds pretty gross, right? But, but, but yeah. the sized wine actually makes such a, a sweet wine. Very interesting. And you talk, Kim, I think the production's all obviously a lot easier 
easier for them. They're getting more out of it, but they have this thing they they want to. They don't want to cut corners and go to the cryo. They want to still use the natural freezing grapes. What, what do you think about the cryo method? About the the people using that? Because I mean, it is very common. Yeah. Uh, around here, people that uh, produce fruit wines, they freeze their fruit all year round and then just thaw it out yeah. and make wine. I've so. had wines made in in that method. Um, I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to be able to tell a difference just based on the taste, whether it was naturally frozen or whether it was cryo frozen. I don't I don't know that people would be able to tell, honestly. But I understand the wanting to stick to tradition part of it as well. What about grapes, Kim? What grapes are we talking about made use uh, for ice ta- Yeah, we're talking about generally Riesling here. When you get to these higher levels of quality when it comes to German Riesling, Riesling is almost always the only grape variety that is used because it, it, it has all the characteristics that make this style of wine be what it's supposed to be. The flavors are good. The aromas are good. It has this perfect balance between sugars and acids. So everything is, you know, just right with the Riesling grape for making these styles of wine. And you mentioned earlier, Kim, about Canada makes these type Mm -hmm. of wines. This is a a tip when you're purchasing ice wines. If you notice a a significant difference in the cost of ice wines, typically one is the natural method and the other is a cryo method, which saves costs. That's a really good point. Be careful with that. And the, uh, the local... I guess local to our audiences here are mostly from the Niagara area right across the border from New York into Canada. And they do make delicious and lovely ice wines, not only from Riesling, but also from some of our hybrid grape varieties like Vidal Blanc. I've seen some Gewürztraminer ice wines, which are unique and wonderful as well. So they are out there. And the German ones, it sounds like ice wine. It's spelled a little bit differently. So it is spelled E-I-S-W-E-I-N. So doesn't necessarily look the same as the words ice wine but it is pronounced the same way vine ice, ice vine. vine german You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. I love when we read articles that really speak to me and have a, a lot reflected in the way that I talk about wine and think about wine and my whole philosophy about wine. And we stumbled across one in the Chicago Tribune that talks a lot about finding wines that you like by understanding what you you don't like. Um, And I almost always start my classes with this, that it is just as valuable to know what you don't like in a wine so that you can communicate that than it is to know what you do like in a wine. So I I read this one and I'm like, oh, yes, this guy gets me. (laughs) Well, one of the things they mentioned, Kim, is uh, this quote you hear all the time in the wine world, drink what you like. And I read a book one time and the gentleman said, you drink what you like probably because you're not exploring anything else that you could like, right? So (laughs) In a way, it's a good thing you drink what you like, but also explore because you can find something else that you will love, right? Right. And the other thing they were saying is you probably don't know what you will like, right? This is the whole base of the article. And you always base your recommendations on, oh, you like that, you probably love this too. So I think that's the way we have to go as far as educators. There's a lot out there Mm -hmm. and explore. But he, he was also saying that sometimes it's a little bit easier to verbalize what you don't like and even... Even if you don't necessarily think you know a whole lot about wine, you might know that you don't like Chardonnay 
or that you don't like Pinot Noir. Um, and that's a great starting point for when you're asking for recommendations because it does allow well, whoever the wine professional is that you're talking to to narrow down towards those things that you would like. So if you are absolutely certain that you don't like sweet wine, then that gets rid of whole categories. Or if you know that you have never found an Italian red wine that you like, it's like, okay, we're going to stay away from wines that are either from Italy or are a similar style to Italian wines. So, you know, it's, it's helpful because sometimes we think in opposites when it comes to talking about wine, talk about oaked versus unoaked or sweet versus dry. There are ways that we think about wine that we can then extend to help you find something else that you would like that might be a little bit different than what you normally drink, but still fall into the category of, you know, this is something you're going to find pleasing. Yeah. Communicate what you like and to find out what you like, if there's a go-to wine you're drinking all the time, research it and find out why you like it. So you mentioned Chardonnay, Kim. If you like a certain Chardonnay, find out if it's 100% of that grape, if it's aged in oak or not. So when you go to a retailer or a restaurant and they don't have your go-to, you can say, this is what I like. I like Chardonnay, 100%, no oak, and they should easily be able to help you out. And a lot of times you, you also mentioned, can we hear all the time, I don't like, when we just had this recently, I don't like red wine. And then you say, okay, do you drink sangria? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you like red wine. You like light, sweet, fruity red wine. So right. you don't want to drink a Cabernet, but you do like like this and that. Right. So that's what we love about the education potters, listening to what people say and then recommending yeah. something. We like to really like dial down into that. Okay, what is it? You say you don't like this whole big broad category, but we try to be the detectives and figure out, okay, what is it about that big broad category that you don't like? Because it might not be that you dislike that whole category. There might be a particular aroma or a particular flavor or a particular texture that you don't find appealing. And that's okay. You're not supposed to like everything. If you did, that would probably be a little weird. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about or nervous about because you don't like a particular style of wine. If you're a wine drinker and you want to explore, there's lots of stuff out there. So absolutely be aware that there's nothing wrong with your particular likes or dislikes. And you don't have to like those wines that get big high scores. That might not be your style. If light whites are for you and big heavy reds aren't, that's okay. Or vice versa. So Kim, I have to ask you, you're on the pretty independent side of the wine world where you helping people understand and you make recommendations based on what they want to go to for a style, right? Mm -hmm. So when you were in sales and people asked you what you like or what you don't like, did you honestly say you hated something in the wine world? Yeah, I've always been really honest. Yeah. (laughs) There are certain styles that I just don't like. But that then I, I kind of would always try to flip that and be like, this is not a style that I enjoy drinking. But that's not to say that it's a bad wine. So like, I don't enjoy big oaky California Chardonnays. I can recognize the quality in certain big oaky California style Chardonnays without necessarily being like, yeah, this is something that I want to drink. But I know that some people absolutely love that style. So it's my job as the wine professional to search out what are the best quality wines in this style? What is the best value wine in this style? It's not for me, but if you like this style, I'm going to 
do everything that I can to get the best quality one for you if that's what you want to drink. So I would never like tell somebody that, oh, you know, this style of wine is terrible. It's all about individual tastes. And since everybody is different, I never had a problem saying, I just don't like this style. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that's exactly where I was hoping you were going because (laughs) I think one of the first things I've ever learned in wine was you, you never say you hate it's just not my style mm-hmm. because someone you're going to have that one person that loves that oaky chardonnay in your in your classroom and you don't want to say oh and they say i love oaky chardonnay you're not going to say i i hate it you're going to no. say i know why you like it and i this is what i recommend you go with it we so, never want to make anybody feel bad about their preferences either so i mean i have grape varieties that personally i can't stand but i'm not going to you probably use that strong language with people because oh, everybody is different there are certain foods that i don't like to eat either but that doesn't mean that they're bad or that you shouldn't like them it's just not me yeah no, but you know i think the bad side of of people having that perspective of not liking certain things is it limits the selection so, so if you're a psalm in a restaurant chances are most of the stuff on that list is something they like mm-hmm. right i mean if they hated a wine or it wasn't their style it's probably not going to be on the list right Would well you it might be if i was writing a restaurant wine list and i didn't put any california chardonnay on there that list would have problems because that is a style of wine that is appreciated by lots and lots of people and loved by lots and lots of people. So it's not my yeah, style. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm you, still you would still have Oki Shards on there. I'm yeah, still putting Oki Shards on there. That makes sense. Thank you for listening to us today. We've been Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find our past episodes, please go to iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine. If you'd like to send us feedback or questions, find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.